Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. Creating a game is shockingly close to creating a con. Your players might be given some instructions, but largely the engagement comes from them making decisions for themselves. Now, in the game world, the level of hand-holding can vary. Like, you got board games where everything has a rule book, and when there's an argument, you can go consult the ancient tome or whatever. But video games, on the other hand, they drop you right in. Suddenly, you're the lead character Only you don't know any of your lines, you don't know your motivation, you don't even know how the world works. And it's up to the world to teach you every bit of the way. Every character, every setting, every idle bit of chatter is something the player assumes might be important. The creator might be tempted to make this process super blunt. Just very forcefully guide the player through the story, restrict where they can go, who they can talk to, eliminate ways to waste time on missions that don't go anywhere. In the video game world, they call that an on-rails experience, and it's a bad thing. It's a negative mark on the story. But you can also go the other way. You can make things too open-world, too open-ended, too expansive, create a world that's very big, but also easy to get lost in so you lose the thread, the story that is the whole point of the thing. But man, if you get that alchemy just right, that ability to trick somebody into thinking they were the first person on the planet to have this genius idea? Spoilers for a decade-old game. But in the game Portal 2, you're trained from the very beginning that you can create an entry and an exit portal on any white surface. You spend the whole game solving puzzles, and then when you get lost, you think, oh wait, where's the little white patch that's painted on somewhere? At some point, they let it leak that this mysterious white paint was made out of moon rocks and stuff. All of these little elements being presented in front of you the whole time you're thinking it's just background color. And you get to the epic end fight where you're armed with nothing but this portal gun, the giant robot looming down over you. The ceiling cracks open and over the shoulder of the big bad robot, you see the full shining moon. And you think you're the first genius to have the thought, wait a minute, this portal gun, an entry, an exit, If I do an entry here and put the exit on the moon, maybe I can suck the robot into... And you've won the game. The whole time you've been guided down the path, 
but at all times it felt like your choice. And even the biggest decision of the game, you get to take credit for. It feels like real magic. When I was in college, I wanted to work in the video games industry. I learned to inverse kinematics, bone structure, started doing tutorials in 3D Studio Max. Turns out I didn't have the patience for any of that. I ended up doing magic instead. But my brother, he went the whole nine yards and he's worked on a dozen titles that you probably know. He had the patience to do that detailed work that filled in all the gaps that made a world believable. I know it's a stretch. We're going from video games to cons here, but stick with me. In our first episode, we learned about a crazy plan to win World War II by dropping a corpse right in Hitler's lap filled with a bunch of false information in it. In this episode, we're going to focus on how our heroes at the 20 Committee go about writing that information. And more to the point of the game analogy, write it in such a way that the Nazis deceive themselves. Make it something they want to believe. Our end goal is for a body to wash ashore, totally full of lies. Or, if you're going to be generous, story. And we need somebody to examine piece by piece every part of the story and put it together themselves and feel like they're the genius who figured out the secret that's buried within. It has to feel perfect, but not too perfect. And that's a tall order because you have to know every move the player, in this case, the one getting played, might make. Jay was good at all of that stuff. He had that attention to detail. And I'm so proud that my brother, I'm so proud of the work my brother did to do exactly that. But as I record this, a few months ago, my brother passed away. And it's messy. It's not like he was just hit by a car crossing the street. There were health concerns. He was battling addiction. And as somebody who loves him deeply, I want answers. I will always want answers. So I took his computer, his monitors. I put together in my office this forensic recreation of his whole setup. I've gotten clues. I can read his old emails, see some photos. I want to believe there's something here that'll let me know what my brother, Jay Brushwood, was thinking when he died. But every time I go in there, I realize I'm not going to get those answers. They're not there. There is no amazing twist to this mystery. The reality is we don't get the puzzle room experience in real life. But I feel it. I feel how bad I want it. And I know I'm never going to get it, but it doesn't stop me. 
Keep booting up the computer, poking around. Then it hits me. That's their job. That's what these agents of deception are doing. And the stakes aren't to solve the mystery of how I lost my brother. The stakes are the freedom of humanity. They need to convince the Nazis that it's obvious how this man died. Because if they know how he died, then they could trust the messages he carries on him. These guys pull this off. They tell a story. They save the world. Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. And this, this may be the world's greatest con. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If the 20 committee is making a game, then as soon as they have their first build, they gotta play test it. In the biz, they call it the QA lab for quality assurance. This is where you play the game, trying to break it. Now remember, the stakes are simple. Our player, or in this case, the one being played, is Nazi intelligence who needs to discover this body, absolutely believe it's authentic, filled with valuable intel, and pass it up the chain. Lucky for us, there is a Nazi intelligence officer in Huelva ready to play the game. So let's start the simulation. A wild body appears in the Atlantic Ocean. The body floats to the shores of Huelva, Spain. A fisherman spots the body and calls the cops. The cops bring the body to a doctor the doctor performs an autopsy on the body and realizes he's been dead for weeks and couldn't possibly have crashed in an airplane. The entire plan is blown. You failed on level one. These are what I would like to imagine the conversations are like for the 20 committee between Charles Chumley and Ewan Montague. They're trying to puzzle out the perfect way to toss their human Plinko chip just right so it ricochets right onto Hitler's desk as impressively as possible. Every decision they make on who this person is is a deliberate choice to advance the cause. 
you can't even get the information into the hands of the Nazi informant who lives right there on the shores of Huelva if the doctor who gets the corpse finds something strange about it. Her game won't even have a chance to unfold. They'll know something's up. Luckily, Huelva has an advantage. Spain's a Roman Catholic country. Roman Catholics don't so much like performing autopsies on the corpses of other Roman Catholics. So, our corpse becomes Roman Catholic. It'll be right there on his ID. The police will certainly check it by the time they get to the doctor. One problem solved. If the body does manage to avoid an autopsy, that means our informant, who has plenty of sources within Spanish intelligence, he'll know every single bit of information the 20 committee sends him. And so begins our construction. Think of it like a peanut M&M. Stay with me here. The peanut is the lie. It's going to be the Balkans and not Sicily. The chocolate is the story that's going to seduce them to that point. But a peanut covered in chocolate is just a chocolate-covered peanut. It's the colorful candy-coated shell that makes it an M&M. That's the artistry that sets something apart, makes it unique. Can't overpower the other two parts. They're still doing the heavy lifting. It just has to be. So let's start with the nut, the actual disinformation. Our dead body is going to have disinformation in two places, on his body and in a briefcase. All the writing has to be done with ink that's tested to make sure it'll stay legible if it's soaked in water for multiple hours. Our nut, our poison pill, is going to be inside that briefcase. It's going to be a letter between Generals Nye and Alexander of Allied Command. It's going to read that the British 12th Army, which by the way does not exist, is going to invade the Balkans in the summer of 1943, starting in Crete and the Peloponnese bringing Turkey into the war against the Axis powers. The Americans would then lead a second invasion into Sardinia as the British pushed in to southern France, leaving Sicily completely untouched. Simple enough, right? Just a couple of military bros writing each other with some military news? No. Chumley and Montague write the letter in the style of General Nye. But since this is a top-secret mission, and anyone who finds this will likely believe this for the rest of their lives, that these are Nye's actual words, Nye gets a little finicky about what he is and is not saying. Nye hates what the 20 Committee is doing, specifically one of the flourishes. Chumley and Montague included a joke between the generals, one disparaging another member of the military leadership. The way you talk when you're absolutely convinced that you're on a secure transmission. It's an audacious flourish from the 20 committee. I mean, think about it. They're using their boss's boss as a puppet to make a joke about someone else in even higher command as a writing device. Knowing that as far as the rest of the world will ever know, he really said it. It's the kind of bold strokes they'll continue to use as they go. Nine nicks the joke, ends up writing the letter himself. Fine. Either way, we have our payload. Now for the fun part. How to make a man from scratch. Remember John Godfrey from the first episode? Ian Fleming's boss, the guy who inspired M from the Bond series? He had one rule with this stuff. 
Don't overcook your story. Don't make a fake person too interesting. Make it messy, like the way you'd find your desk at work if you had to evacuate the building in 30 seconds and never returned. An experienced intelligence operative can smell an overcooked story a mile away and will dismiss it right out of hand. Even more so, the more details you add, the more you open yourself up to something that can be fact-checked and put the lie to your tail. But by this point in the war, Godfrey is no longer overseeing the 20 committee. He's been reassigned. The regulator was off. Chumley, Montague, they're ready to get to work. As we're about to find out, these two had a much more colorful writing style. They wanted to cover this poison pill with enough information to obscure the lie, make it a rewarding find once it was discovered. Back to our game analogy, the real M would have forced a messy but small adventure that surrounded our main quest with just a little bit of scenery. Montague and Chumley, on the other hand, they wanted a very well-defined main character and a whole universe surrounding him. So let's go back to the imaginary game lab. They patched their problem with the autopsy, and now they're ready to test again. Here goes nothing. A wild body appears in the Atlantic Ocean. The body floats to the shores of Huelva, Spain. A fisherman spots the body and calls the cops. The cops bring the body to a doctor. The doctor sees the body is a Roman Catholic and refuses to do an autopsy. The cops then bring the body's military information to Spanish intelligence. Spanish intelligence leaks it to Nazi intelligence. Huelva's Nazi sees that the corpse is named St. John Radcliffe Stewart Horsefall. He calls that into Nazi HQ and Nazi HQ tells Huelva that based on their records, St. John Radcliffe Stewart Horsefall is a famous race car driver. Huelva dismisses anything he finds on the corpse and the plan is ruined. So it looks like we can't just pick the random name of a race car driver. We need a name that makes sense. Oh, but we were pretty close there. Personally, I would have gone with Johnny McAwesome. Because even if it ruined the mission, at least that name totally rules, right? The 20 committee needs something that will avoid detection. Don't overcook. While looking for a list of Royal Marines, Montague notices there's a glut of Martins listed. And within that small glut are a whole bunch of Williams and Bills. And in a morbid stroke of luck, one of those Martins had recently died in the line of battle just a few months ago. This would allow the 20 committee to run kind of a vague public obituary for Bill that the real Martin family would see as a months-old tribute to their guy, and any German intelligence would see as confirmation that the body they found was indeed an important enough player to warrant a tribute. Now we're talking. Okay, so Bill Martin has to be a Roman Catholic. He's a Royal Marine. He just died in a tragic plane crash while transmitting a private correspondence between two humorless members of the Allied High Command. Now, if the real M, John Godfrey, were still in charge, might not have gone much further than that. Throw some cigarettes in his coat, maybe a couple of quid, newspaper, says he was in London recently. If the real M was still in charge, the candy coating on our chocolate-covered peanut would definitely be brown. Boring as hell. 
John Godfrey doesn't call the shots on this project, and Ewan Montague is just getting started. He and Chumley spend days and nights talking about Bill, like he's a real person, a friend of theirs. They debate his habits, his likes, his dislikes. They casually mention his family and friends just to see if it all fits. What emerges is a real main character, a young Welsh aspiring author who served his country in an office setting before deciding he needed to see more action and volunteered to see the fight himself. He's a Royal Marine, but not without flaws. His dashing devil-may-care attitude often makes him forgetful, overindulgent. He consistently overdraws his bank account. He's a real guy. And he relies on his fussy, era-appropriate father to cover the difference. He even loves fishing. Montague would later write, Bill Martin became real to us. And based on the amount of work they put into his backstory and the supporting evidence to back it up, it shows. Some of it's easy. He's a smoker, so he has cigarettes. How do you explain that he's forgetful, though? Not good with his money. Letters? Letters that a traveling Marine would keep on his person? The bank situation would be explained by a note from Lloyd's of London, plainly alerting him to his negative balance. This was actually written by a higher-up at the head office of the bank, something that would be out of the ordinary for most people, but could be rationalized because Martin's father probably would be the kind of guy that has friends in high places, might take on the job themselves. The technical term for all of this is pocket litter. Little things that help sell a lie. A letter from his impatient father from a hotel he didn't like. A letter from his lawyer. It's a lot. Maybe too much? Yeah, I don't know. This is the kind of stuff that draws you in, right? This is the tableau. That first moment when your brain is stuffed with information and you're being walked right down the path to subjugate your better judgments. On the other hand, the marks here aren't just anyone. They're Nazi intelligence. If they believe the information about the attack, they will fact check every inch of this paper trail. They're going to look for every reason to prove that this isn't legit. Which is why you have to wonder in hindsight what Montague and Chumley were thinking. They've got that nut, that poison pill center. They've got a perfectly fine chocolatey story wrapped around it. They even have a candy coating. Do you really want to turn it into a jawbreaker by adding... A love story? Hey, so this is normally where an ad would go, but we don't have any mattresses to sell you. But what we do have is even better. Do you want to feel like an actual spy? Do you want to feel like somebody who knows how to escape from police-issued handcuffs, pick locks, solve impossible puzzle boxes? We have all of that stuff and so much more. You'll be directly supporting the show if you head on over to con, that's con.scamstuff.com. It's run by us. It is of us. You'll be directly giving us money and making sure we get to keep on telling you about the world's greatest Cons. That's con.scamstuff.com.
Ewan Montague is a worldly man. Take just a moment to put yourself in Montague's shoes. A father, a husband, somebody who cares about the country, wants to join the war effort. Born in 1901, he's a machine gun instructor during the First World War at an American Naval Academy, then goes back to England where he becomes a lawyer, even notches a few impressive cases, gets married, has kids. But when I picture him sitting at the kitchen table with the missus, ragamuffins running around in the background, I would imagine the only thing they're really concerned with is the fact that their family is Jewish. The Nazi war machine is knocking on their door. Now, war hasn't even been declared yet, but he wants to protect his family. So he talks it over and they make the decision to send everybody to the United States so that he can enlist in the war effort and be boots on the ground to defend his family. We do know that the love story wasn't Montague's idea. It was a female member of the 20 committee who suggested that a young strapping man like Bill, he wouldn't be without a wartime romance. Enter Pam. They only spend five weeks together before he proposes marriage. A jeweler's receipt for an engagement ring will be found on his corpse along with Pam's love letters. They tell the story of a ditzy secretary head over heels in love and terrified that her fiancé will die before she ever lays eyes on him again. Quote, Now that we've found each other out of the whole world, I don't think I could bear you getting deployed. Why do we have to meet in the middle of the war now? Her backstory is built up just as much as Bill's. These letters, they read like middle school love notes. She's bored at work. She hates her boss. She gossips about the quality of men her friends are attracted to. Complains about how bossy her aunt is. Montague and Chumley didn't try to bring Pam to life themselves, the way they did with General Nye. For that, they relied on two people. The words in the letters from Pam were written down by Hester Leggard, the oldest in the secretarial pool, who was derisively nicknamed Spin, as in spinster, by her co-workers. But of course, no red-blooded man would head off into war with just the letters. No, 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 they needed a picture of their best girl. So if Martin was going to die, he had to do so with a picture of Pam on his person. And that would fall to another secretary, one that was most certainly not a spinster. Her name was Jean Leslie, a brilliant, beautiful young secretary who had such a keen eye, she discovered inconsistencies in some of the intelligence coming in and alerted the higher-ups. She had such a big heart She was devastated to hear that the double agent she had discovered was put to death. Leslie was chosen to be the face of Pam, and with that, had to turn over a suitable picture to make her real. The one chosen features a young Leslie fresh out of the water from a swim she's taking, wearing a one-piece bathing suit, toweling off. By today's standards, it's adorable. Wholesome vacation photo on Instagram. But in the early 40s, in England... Might as well have been their version of OnlyFans. It was an intimate photo for a fiancé's eyes only. And Nazi intelligence isn't the only one who enjoys the sight of Pam. Ewan Montague, separated from his wife due to the war, became smitten with Jean Leslie. Even asked her out on a date for dinner and dancing. Which begs the question, are we going too far? 
I mean, Montague's marriage aside, isn't this exactly the kind of thing that the real M warned against? This isn't just a delivery method for false information anymore. They're putting on a play. It's got a cast of colorful characters. The heroic but ever-evolving main character. The domineering but generous father. The doe-eyed, doomed fiancé. Those are just the principles. There's a whole cast of secondary characters we haven't even gotten to yet. The frustrated banker. The fat sister. Pam's useless bean-counter boss. This all seems so theatrical. This project is designed to fool Hitler, to save the free world. If M was there, I'd imagine he'd flip over a table and shout, This isn't espionage. You're making a movie. Not just any movie either. Your favorite movie. The same movie you've seen a million times before. They are in danger of hinging the fate of the free world on the monomyth. And now, on with the show. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. In 1949, Joseph Campbell wrote the book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. In it, he describes the monomyth. This is the framework for pretty much any story you've ever cared about, ever. Goes a little something like this. Hero, average person with flaws, finds a call to adventure, a reason to leave, crosses a threshold, begins a transformation. His exit from safety brings him challenges and temptations that lead him to ruin. He hits the abyss, a death that leads to rebirth. And it's here he truly finds himself and is transformed. With this new clarity, he atones for the mistakes he made while challenged and tempted. It's then he realizes that it was the community that he left. That was the most important thing after all. And the one that he can benefit now that he's changed. It's only then our hero can return to where he once belonged. They worship this book in Hollywood. We came in with The Matrix because The Matrix is this story. So's Star Wars, The Lion King. What's special about it is how efficient it is. All of the characters' negative traits are punished and rebuilt as strengths. He's greedy before he becomes generous. He leaves so he can come back. He dies so he, he can live. John Godfrey hated espionage that was overcooked because our human brains are attracted to these stories. But when you look at the story being told by Charmley and Montague, it's the very definition of a tragedy because it's an unfinished monomyth. Bill Martin is our Neo if the Matrix frustratingly ended halfway through. And that's a powerful story. Bill Martin has a desk job, but finds his call to adventure by transferring to a more active role in the field. Crossing that threshold, he lives beyond his means as he grapples with a life which is not promised for him, including finding Pam. Pam warns him not to leave. She pleads with him, but he can't resist the call. And then, as our Nazi informant will be among the first to realize, he dies before his time. Now that we're spelling out the monomyth, you probably are already completing it in your head. Say he doesn't die. Say he serves his role in the military, marries Pam learns the value of money, makes peace with his father, eventually returns home a wiser man who could better his community. That life, that life you just played out in your head cannot exist 
unless Chumley and Montague give you the pieces that can make it possible. Mincemeat can rightly be credited for being a closed-loop story. Look, it's a bad escape room. Everyone mentioned in the letters is explained in that letter or another. Even the little things are not left to mystery. For example, the amount that Bill Martin is overdrawn at the bank just happens to be the exact same amount that his engagement ring costs. What's worse? Some of the facts in the documents don't even check out. If Nazi intelligence were to fact check Martin's father's stay at the hotel he claims to have stayed in, they'd find no such record. Same thing with the engagement ring. Now they have no excuse. This isn't up for interpretation. They overextended the story. The only thing that would save them is if the Nazis didn't even bother to check everything out. It's the night before Bill Martin lands in Huelva. The 20 committee is about to cross the finish line. They got approval from the brass. They prepared the corpse for transfer. It's loaded up with all the paperwork it needs, except for one thing. Bill Martin needs to prove he was in London recently. So hell, why not? Bill takes in one of the hottest shows in London. The tickets are purchased weeks in advance. So the date can make sense by the time that Bill Martin actually floats to Spain. But since Bill is currently in a submarine and also technically not a real person, it's the 20 committee that takes in the performance. The torn ticket with the date on it should be an elegant way to prove that the letter came from the UK en route to the Allied stronghold in North Africa. It's a review show with some era-appropriate gallows humor. The audience is told they will be informed if bombing begins, but under no circumstances will they be offered a refund. In a weird way, this is the last time the mind of Bill and the physical form of Pam will ever be together before the plan begins. And we don't know if Montague strayed with the pretty young secretary. Throughout the war, Montague wrote to his wife in America with flowery prose. He was upfront that he took Jean out to dinner and dancing, but we'll likely never know the full truth if there was anything beyond that, because the man who controlled the narrative of the very story we're telling was Ewan Montague. Montague was the first one to ever publicly acknowledge this operation even happened in 1953. He wrote a redacted memoir about the story called The Man Who Never Was. Three years later, it was made into a movie. Other than Montague's own words and the movie based on his own words, there's some limited war records and exactly one book on this subject. Although it's more interesting to tell a story about a good man whose pressure at his job led him to cheat with a coworker, it's maybe not the truth because the truth is more complicated. To be honest, you'd be fair to ask why we even included this will-they-won't-they romance in the narrative of this story. Just consider it our tribute to the 20 committee that we added our own salacious little candy coating to this episode. But if the curtain is about to raise on the real Operation Mincemeat, we gotta run our playtest one more time, right? A wild body appears in the Atlantic Ocean. 
The body floats to the shores of Guelva, Spain. A fisherman spots the body and calls the cops. The cops bring the body to a doctor. The doctor sees the body is a Roman Catholic and refuses to do an autopsy. The cops then bring the body's military information to Spanish intelligence. Spanish intelligence leaks it to Nazi intelligence. Huelva's Nazi sees that the body is named Bill Martin. He calls that into Nazi HQ and Nazi HQ tells Huelva that based on their records, there are plenty of Bill Martins in the Royal Marines. Huelva's Nazi intelligence begins rifling through everything found on the body. He finds a ticket to a show in London and an identification card of Bill Martin in better times. A healthy man who didn't know his death was around the corner. He believes this was a real accident. He believes all the information. Our player has been played. Our player's been played. Did you hear that? We just won the game. We made it. We got the info enthusiastically in the hands of somebody who's going to sell it. If anything's going to get screwed up after this, it ain't going to be our fault. We delivered the goods. And yes, maybe it's an overwritten video game, but it works, and we know it works. So in your face, all you doubters, you haters, everybody on my 20 committee discord, that's what I imagine the 20 committee is talking about. Anything beyond this is something that none of us could have seen coming. Sure, the story might be overcooked and maybe there's parts that won't stand up to scrutiny, but we are now as sure as we can be that it will get into the right hands. And that in and of itself is the victory of this moment. Once these materials are received, they're going to be poured over by the best of the best in the disinformation business. All of this has to stand up to the strictest scrutiny. Which brings up that little detail of the ID card and the grisly story behind it. The initial hope was that they were going to use the corpse itself to take a photo for the ID. Chumley and Montague went to the morgue. They dressed up the body in the appropriate uniform. They posed it. They snapped the photo. It was disgusting. Weekend at Bernie's meets the walking dead. They wound up using a living soldier who looked vaguely close enough to like the corpse for the ID. I mean, it's one thing to create a life on the page, but create one in the flesh? More importantly, how do you move that corpse in reasonable shape from London to the coast of Spain without it falling apart? How do you drop it out of a plane without it dissolving into a million pieces? The answer begins with a tragic cast-off of society who's going to eat rat poison, die, and return to life as a war hero. But would it all be for nothing? Would the disinformation suffer because the 20 committee just couldn't help being too precious? Did they lean too hard into telling a story that we want to hear instead of a simpler one that's more brutal and ugly like real life? I don't know. And sorry for going back in my personal story here, but there was definitely a moment that made me think about this. I'm not trying to win a world war. But I am a grieving brother with a lot of pocket litter right in front of me. And that hunger for simplicity, that discomfort with the mystery, I feel it every day. 
I found a simple notepad text document on Jay's desktop labeled to do. When I opened it, it said, write will, power of attorney, write email to Brian, write letter to my ex-wife. It was so on the nose. In the moment, it looked like a to-do list of somebody getting their affairs in order because they fully expected to die. It was the kind of note that as horrifying as it was, would let me close a chapter and quiet all those questions running through my head night after night. It was simplicity. And it wasn't until three days later that I even thought to check when it was written. It had been written three years ago, after one of his rehab stints. Exactly the kind of to-do list you would put if you were getting your life together. What I really had was another complicated, jagged edge that real life is made of. The morbid end that would have brought me clarity was just an illusion because it was really just a beautiful, fresh start that wasn't meant to be. If I hadn't thought to check the date of that note, me and my family might have lived the rest of our lives having a tidy end to a tragedy. And it could have gone either way. So ask yourself right now, which is more real? The reality you desperately hope for or the messy truth? This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Produced by Dog and Pony Show Audio, special credit goes to Operation Mince Meat by Ben McIntyre, the source of most of the material we have. By the way, of course, you've got questions. We want to give you answers, so send them in right now to worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. In the next episode of World's Greatest Con, holy cow, do things explode. Everything's been written and everything gets set into motion. We got race car drivers, we got dead bodies, we got frozen feet. There's even machine guns and submarines. It's all coming up in the next episode of World's Greatest Con. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.